welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. These are the words that Moses spoke across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the sons of Israel in accordance with everything that the Lord had commanded him. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 17, New American Standard Bible. Hello, welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're glad that you're able to join us for another episode of Anchored by Truth. Today, we're going to wrap up our series on the Ten Commandments. To help us finish off this very important lesson, we have R.D. Fierro in the studio. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., we have a lot of information to get to today as we close out this series, and anyone who would like to hear any of the previous episodes can always find them on our website, crystalseabooks.com. C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S-E-A-B-O-O-K-S.com. We've covered a lot of material in this series, but you said that today you want to take up another topic that's relevant to the Ten Commandments that so far we've only briefly mentioned. What's on your mind? The one subject that I wanted to address, at least briefly, in this final episode of the Ten Commandments series is how we can be confident that the Ten Commandments are what the Bible portrays them to be, transcendent, moral, and ethical principles that have been delivered to us by God Almighty. And so we want to cover, just briefly in this episode, how we can be assured that the books of the Bible that contain the Ten Commandments are reliable and trustworthy. Regular listeners to Anchored by Truth know we believe that there are four lines of evidence that demonstrate that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. First, the Bible is historically reliable. Second, the Bible displays a remarkable unity for a book that was composed by over three dozen human authors who wrote over a span of 1,500 years. Third, the Bible gives evidence of supernatural origin, especially through a large body of fulfilled prophecy. And the fourth line of evidence is that the Bible has resulted in an untold number of lives that have been positively changed by its transcendent message. We also strongly believe that the Christian faith is a faith that is grounded in evidence, logic, and reason. Contrary to the refrain that you hear from some people that, you have faith but I have reason, we believe that a proper use of logic, reason, and evidence actually demonstrates that the Christian faith is true. Yes, and we believe that these lines of evidence support the historicity and validity of the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Or, speaking more broadly, we believe that these four lines of evidence support the traditional view that Moses wrote all of the first five books of the Bible, which are sometimes called the Pentateuch. 
in the last 100 to 200 years, an attack was begun upon the traditional view that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible in the 15th century B.C. Now, frankly, the alternatives to Mosaic authorship are well-known, they're well-publicized, and sadly, they're actually taught in many seminaries. But, you know, the rebuttal to those heresies gets far less coverage. And so that's what we want to focus our time on today. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start out by examining some of the internal evidence that's contained in the Pentateuch that supports the traditional view that Moses wrote all of the first five books of the Bible. So, to begin with, let's just remind everyone that the Ten Commandments are first given in Exodus, and then they are repeated in Deuteronomy, and this repetition of important points is consistent with God's overall pattern of repeating the major themes in Scripture. I mean, just as a general statement, if there's a big idea in the Bible and God really wants to make sure we get it, God is going to put that big idea in more than one Bible book. The Ten Commandments were a critical part of God establishing the new nation that God wanted to form with the ancient Hebrews after God delivered the Hebrews from an extended period of Egyptian captivity. And this pattern of repetition and reinforcement is itself strong evidence of unity of Scripture. There are 66 books within the Bible, but there is a single mind behind all the books. Yes. So one observation that demonstrates the fact that Moses wrote the book of Exodus is that the crops and the crop sequence that is contained in chapter 9 of Exodus is consistent with the agricultural cycle of Egypt but not the agricultural cycle of Palestine. Most of the alternatives to Mosaic authorship speculate that the Pentateuch was composed, or at least completed, in either the territory of Israel or the territory near Babylon sometime between the 8th century B.C. and the 5th century B.C. But when the book of Exodus describes the sequence of plagues that affected the Egyptian crops, the writer got the type of crops and the sequence in which those crops would mature in Egypt correct. Similarly, when Moses mentions trees and animals in Exodus, as in one of the other books in the Pentateuch, the trees and animals Moses names are found in either Egypt or in the Sinai Peninsula. The Sinai Peninsula was where Israel wandered for the 40-year period between the parting of the Red Sea and their arrival in Palestine across from the city of Jericho. For instance, the acacia tree, which is featured in the wood used for making the tabernacle, essentially a big tent, is found commonly in Egypt or in the Sinai, but it is rare in Palestine except right along the Dead Sea. Another example is the animal skin that was used to cover the tabernacle, or the furniture used in the tabernacle during transportation. The animal mentioned is the dugong, which is found in the waters adjacent to Egypt or the Sinai, but is unknown in Israel. The dugong is a marine mammal that is similar to a manatee. Exactly. And a third compelling example of internal evidence that points to Mosaic authorship in the 15th century B.C. are the geographical references that are found in the Pentateuch. For instance, in Genesis chapter 13, the writer wants to make a point to his readers that the Jordan River Valley is filled with lush and abundant plant life. So in conveying this thought, the writer refers his readers to the, quote, land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. So in doing that, the writer is assuming that his audience knows what that region of Egypt is like. 
I mean, there wouldn't have been any point using that region of Egypt as a reference to an audience that was unfamiliar with the geography of Egypt. So if a writer had been writing hundreds of years later, hundreds of miles away, in the first place, his audience most likely would not have had the familiarity with the geography of Egypt to even understand that kind of reference. But furthermore, it would have been completely unnecessary for a writer who wrote the book of Genesis, who was living in Palestine, to tell his audience what the Jordan River Valley was like. Everybody in Israel knew what the Jordan River Valley was like. So the fact that the writer had to mention something like that tells you he was writing to an audience that was unfamiliar with the Jordan River Valley, but was familiar with the geography of Egypt. Furthermore, the specific geographic reference that the writer is using there in Genesis is in the Egyptian Delta region, which is the region in which Scripture tells us the Israelites settled when they first went down to Egypt because of the famine in Palestine. And what is even more striking about the geological references in the Pentateuch is an almost complete absence of any reference to Jerusalem. The only mention of the city which was to become the centerpiece of Israelite history and culture is in the encounter between Abraham and Melchizedek when the book of Genesis notes that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. If the books of the Pentateuch had been written in either Israel or after the Babylonians had conquered Jerusalem, there is no way an author writing then would have left Jerusalem out of the history. Jerusalem wasn't just the city of the Hebrew people. It was also where Solomon had built the temple. Jerusalem and the temple had been the center of Israelite life and the worship for hundreds of years at the time the heretics claimed that the Pentateuch was written. Writing a history of their people at the time and ignoring Jerusalem would have been like someone writing history of Great Britain in the 19th century and ignoring London. The idea would have been unthinkable. So, those are just a few parts of the internal evidence that show that Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the other books of the Pentateuch were written by Moses in the 15th century BC, and that he wrote them during a prolonged period in the Sinai Desert. There is also external evidence that supports the traditional time frame and location. For instance, there is a group of letters well known to scholars called the Amarna Letters, the Amarna letters are a group of clay tablets which contain correspondence between people who were living in Canaan or Syria and people and the rulers specifically of Egypt in the vicinity of 1300 BC. Now, in the text of those letters, the rulers of various cities in Palestine and Syria complained that the Canaanite territories which they ruled were now frequently coming under attack from peoples that they called the Apiru. Now, that term, the Apiru, is not a term that refers exclusively to Israelites, but it was a term that could be applied to them in many cases. Now, the rulers of Canaan and Syria were writing to the Egyptians because those portions of Canaan and Syria had been under Egyptian control for a long time. They were vassals of the Egyptian country. The Canaanite and the Syrian rulers, they wanted help to defend themselves and to get rid of these attackers. Well, the fact that they had to write these letters shows that this was a period in which Egypt's influence in Canaan was starting to diminish. I mean, after all, if the Egyptians still had firm control over those territories, the attacks by the Apiru wouldn't have begun in the first place. And it's important to note that the Amarna letters were written at a time about a hundred years after the Bible tells us that the Hebrews under Joshua had begun attacking cities in Canaan and taking them over. 
The pharaohs of the time basically ignored the pleas for help from their Canaanite vassals. This fits nicely with the record in Joshua and Judges that Egypt was not an impediment to the Israelites entering the land. A lot of people mistakenly think that Jericho fell and then Hebrews just assumed control of all of Palestine. But that's not what happened at all. The Bible presents a complex picture of the conquest rather than a fast invasion and permanent takeover of the whole promised land. And many of the cities and places that Joshua defeated were not occupied by the Israelites after Joshua defeated them, but he simply left them abandoned. Well, that allowed the indigenous people of Canaan to move back into those decimated cities. And for a number of those cities, such as Megiddo, Gezer, and Jerusalem, Joshua's army killed their kings, but the books of Joshua and Judges also state that Israel failed to drive out the inhabitants of those cities completely. Well, these same city names appear in the Amarna letters as those that were still under Canaanite authorities. So there is actually very good harmony between the biblical record and the Amarna letters. Now, another fascinating archaeological find that helps support the biblical account contained in the book of Exodus is a stella that was found in a shrine that is connected with the Great Sphinx at the Giza Plateau. A stella is essentially a small stone column or pillar that has carved inscriptions. This particular stella contains records of a dream by a man named Tutmos IV. And in this dream, Tutmos said that the Egyptian god Harmachis appeared to him and promised Tutmos that one day Tutmos would rule Egypt. And Tutmos said that this dream happened to him when he was only one of many princes of the royal family. Well, that doesn't seem to be that remarkable a dream. Promising a prince that he would one day become king, or in the case, the pharaoh, doesn't seem like it would be so unusual that it would merit being inscribed on a stone column and preserved in a shrine. I agree. Just from the bare facts, it doesn't seem like a dream to a prince that said that prince would become a king would be that remarkable. But in this case, we have to remember that at the time Tutmos received that dream, he was just one of many of the princes in the royal family. In other words, it was most likely that at the time Tutmos got his dream, he was not likely to become the pharaoh. You know, the order of succession in most monarchies in Egypt in those days is strictly determined by the birth order. So if Tutmos had an older brother, the older brother would have been the one in line to become the pharaoh, not Tutmos. But history tells us that Tutmos did become the pharaoh in 1421 B.C., after Amenhotep II died, and Amenhotep II is regarded by many scholars as being the pharaoh of the Exodus. I think I see what you're getting at. If Amenhotep was the pharaoh ruling Egypt at the time of the Exodus, his successor would have been whoever his eldest son was. But the last plague that was visited upon the Egyptians was the death of the firstborn of every house. The New International Version of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 29, says, quote, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well, unquote. That means that the eldest son of Pharaoh, the one who would have been expected to become the Pharaoh, would have died. The death of the crown prince, the eldest son, would have meant that another son of Pharaoh would have taken his place. 
So whichever son eventually took the place of the crown prince who died would have grown up not expecting to become Pharaoh. So a dream in which a supposed god came and told him that he would eventually become Pharaoh would have been a remarkable event, an event remarkable enough to be literally carved in stone. Exactly. Now, scholars are not by any means united in how they date the ruling periods of various dynasties and pharaohs in Egypt. So the dates and the sequences that we are discussing aren't uniformly agreed upon by all scholars. But there are a lot of scholars who do agree with the dates and the sequences. And we know that the stela is real, and we know that the inscription is real. Now, it's also possible that Tutmos had the stela carved with that inscription, and he was the crown prince all along, and that the dream was simply a reinforcement of the fact that he would live long enough to succeed his father. But as the well-known biblical scholar Gleason Archer has noted, and I'm quoting now, But since this would have been the normal sequence of events, hardly requiring any unusual favor from the gods, it is far more likely that Tutmos was not the crown prince at the time he had the dream. At any rate, the people and times involved give rise to the distinct possibility that the stone column provides additional evidence of the historical reliability of the book of Exodus. In that regard, it's interesting to note that even the name Thutmose is somewhat helpful because it and the name Moses obviously have a common origin. And since that origin is indisputably Egyptian, it lends credence to the Bible's record that Moses was given his name by Pharaoh's daughter when she took him out of the Nile River. It would make no sense that a group of Jewish writers writing hundreds of years after the Jews had occupied Palestine would have given their great lawgiver and deliverer such a distinctly Egyptian name. Exactly. And there are other archaeological finds that also provide external evidence that supports the reliability of the book of Exodus and the other books of the Pentateuch such as the fact that the various plagues described in the Exodus have a direct connection to the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So when the one true God hit the Egyptians with the plagues, he wasn't just doing it to make the Egyptians miserable. God was doing it to demonstrate his superiority over the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. So, for instance, the Egyptians worshipped a god named Hepi. That was the god of the Nile. And so when God sent a plague that attacked the Nile, that showed the superiority of the God of Moses over the Egyptian God Hepi. Then the plague of frogs, that was directed at the Egyptian goddess Heket. And the plague of darkness was directed at the Egyptian God Ra. There's a good bit of evidence that's available through very simple internet searches, and we've put a couple of links to some of those articles in the podcast notes. So the point that we are getting to is that there is both good internal and external evidence that points to the authenticity of the books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the other books of the Pentateuch. The evidence shows that these books are historically reliable, and if they are historically reliable about names, places, plants, trees, and animals, it means they can be trusted when they report about things that we can't verify simply by our own observations, like Moses' sighting of the burning bush. And in other series on Anchored by Truth, we have discussed extensively the scientific evidence that supports the historicity of the most contested book of the Bible, Genesis. We would particularly point people to our Truth in Genesis series. And again, all of our previous episodes of Anchored by Truth are available from our website. So, what final thoughts do you have as we close out this series? 
Well, we've discussed a number of overarching themes during this series. God gave Moses, the ancient Hebrews, and us the Ten Commandments for our good. God doesn't need the Ten Commandments. We do. Well, even if we just look around us today, boy, we see a profound need for the last five commandments because in those commandments, human beings are being told that they must not lie, steal, commit adultery or sexual immorality or kill innocent human beings. Well, those sins are rampant in our world today. I mean, imagine what the wickedness would be if there were no restraints on them at all. I imagine our world might look a lot like the world of Noah just before God sent the flood because, quote, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, unquote. And that's from Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 from the New International Version. It might. And that would be really sad. So, just from our own simple observations, we can see the need for the last five of the Ten Commandments to restrain sin and evil. And we've also seen that one of the big reasons that God gave us the Ten Commandments was to protect His dignity and the dignity of the only creature that bears God's image, which is man. One thread that ties all the commandments together is that they are all concerned with the dignity of God and the dignity of people because they are God's image bearers the last five of the commandments would not have been necessary if the fall had never occurred because their primary purpose is to restrain sin in the fallen creation. But even those commandments are bound together by dignity. The sixth commandment is concerned with the dignity of their lives, the seventh with the dignity of marriage, and the eighth the dignity of work. The ninth commandment is concerned with the dignity of words, speech, and truth. And the Tenth Commandment is concerned with the dignity of desire, especially our desire for God. And one final point we should cover before we close for today is all of these observations point us back to the reality of the creation record that is contained in Genesis. And another overarching idea we've talked about is that the commandments were given to us in a specific order. The first three commandments were all concerned with the dignity of God's nature and His personhood. And then the fourth and the fifth commandments were concerned with the manifestation of God's dignity into the created order. The fourth commandment had to do with the period of God's creative activity. And the fifth commandment to honor fathers and mothers has to do with the product of God's creative activity. But of course, all of these observations are only applicable if the Ten Commandments are authentic pronouncements of an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And that means the books they come from must be reliable records, which, as we have discussed briefly today, they are. In a very real sense, the continued, widespread presence of sin shows that the Ten Commandments were a very wise precaution that God took to try to forestall the ultimate decline of His people. And the failure, frankly, of all of us to honor the Ten Commandments in our own lives points to our profound need for a Savior to rescue us from our own rebellion. One of the most disturbing reports I've heard recently is that a recent survey has said that only 20% of the people in America consider the Bible to be the literal Word of God, but 29% consider the Bible to be a collection of myths and fairy tales. 
for this nation or for any nation to have any hope for ultimate redemption and restoration, we have to address this very sad situation of biblical ignorance. I think this points us back to where we started. There are at least four lines of evidence that support the validity and reliability of the Bible. Remarkable unity, reliable history, fulfilled prophecy, and redeemed destinies. But none of the evidence will do anyone any good if we don't know about it. You have often said that Christians must become people of fact in a world absorbed with feelings. Christians must indeed become people of facts in this world full of feelings. The world today is either distracted by its entertainment or it's immersed in oceans of angst and manufactured emotion. It fills our airways. It fills our internet channels. In our culture, we often hear the mantra, well, you have faith, but we have science. Quite frankly, more often than not, the exact opposite is true. Christians have a faith that is supported by logic, reason, and evidence, including scientific evidence. But as you just said, none of this evidence will do any good for those who ignore the evidence or those who won't absorb the evidence. God is God of facts. Jesus is our Savior because of the fact of the resurrection. Jesus proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus did not say he felt like he was. He said that he was. The facts and the truth are on our side. Jesus has already won the victory, but it's up to us to proclaim the good news of his victory as widely as possible. The Ten Commandments contain abundant evidence that they are good for us, but the reason that they are good for us is because they came from an almighty God who wants good for his people. Well, this sounds like a good time to end for today and go to prayer. Since we are rapidly approaching Father's Day, today let's listen to a prayer for our fathers. A prayer for fathers. Lord God Almighty, you are the strength and stability of my life. In you we have the security of knowing that you love and accept us no matter what condition we are in when we come to you. Yet we also have the inspiration of knowing that you call us to live holy and pure lives. Your desire for each of us is to mature and become better citizens of your kingdom and better servants to our community. Thank you for being a God who loves us so much that you want the best for us. Lord, I come to you today to seek your blessing on my Father. In the Bible, you have invited us to call you Father, so we know that being a father is a role never to be taken lightly. I pray that you would help my father to be the kind of model that you want him to be, and that you would be the special power in his life that enables him to fulfill his role. I know that often my father struggles with so many competing priorities. He wants to be many things to many different people, and in our fallen world, None of us will ever live up fully to what we expect of ourselves. Help him to understand, Lord, that as long as he sets his heart on you and seeks first to be a faithful son to you, that all the other things will be added to his life. I pray for health and strength for my father. You know better than any of us when he is tired or hurt, so I pray that you would grant him healing, health, and restoration as he grows weary or ill. I pray that you would comfort him as he finds cares and troubles pressing about him. 
You know that my father wants to be a problem solver and take the burden from others' shoulders. Help him to do all he can. But I also pray that you would send him your peace when it's time for him to rest from his labor. I pray that you would surround him with friends and companions. I know that he loves being with family, and I pray that ours will always be a close one. But I also know that there are times when he needs to be with good friends who can provide him with companionship that comes from a set of truly devoted friends. I pray that he would be a blessing to them, and they to him. You are truly our Great Father. We know of your love and affection for us because you sent your Son to tell us about you and then ordained that he should die to save us. We are awed by his great love and yours. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S dot com. Thank you for your support.